when we read the book of Revelation, we see at the end and at the beginning, uh, John, the author, divides people into two categories. We sort of don't like just two stark categories. We'd rather have like a, a spectrum, a gradation, but John doesn't do that. He says there's only two types of people in the world, and it all comes down to how we respond to the truth about Jesus Christ. Here's John 2's categories. At the end of Revelation 21, 6 and 7, he says this. Here are the categories. You're either a conqueror or a coward. You're either an overcomer of the world or you're a succumber to the world. You're either victorious or you are not. He's painting a picture of all who are truly in Christ persevere. They're loyal. They're victorious in the end, they are victorious and all others are not. This is the, the picture of two categories and the book of Revelation in some ways is written, one of the purposes is to fill us with the promises of God. So those of us that are in Christ, who already have the victory of Christ, will keep going, will keep persevering, will keep conquering and not shrink away. That's why the book of Revelation is written, that we would be faithful and determined and live for Christ in the midst of all the earthly things that come our way. That's the heart of the book of Revelation for all of us. But the book of Revelation is also written to seven specific churches, real churches in about A.D. 90. And each of these churches were facing very real obstacles and some in the church may have wondered, are we going to be conquerors? Will we be victorious or will we just give away and shrink up and capitulate and succumb to the things of this world? And so John, the author of Revelation, records these words of Jesus to encourage these real churches that they would keep going, that they would know that the victory of Christ is their victory and they keep persevering and keep moving forward. They're each facing different obstacles and different challenges. But John records these words of Jesus so they wouldn't give up. You can see how they might be discouraged. These churches that we're going to read about, it's about AD 90. They were started in about AD 50, so they're about 40 years old. And as they would have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would have heard this wonderful message about Jesus. Jesus, who was crucified, rose from the dead. He defeated death and he defeated sin. And if you put your trust in him, your sin will be forgiven. You will defeat sin and ultimately you will defeat death. Join and follow the mighty conqueror, Jesus. It was good news. It's good news now. It was good news then. And many in these cities signed up. They trusted in Christ and began to follow him. Now some 40 years later, maybe they knew people who knew Jesus, right? This is not that long after the time of Jesus. Remember, he's the ascended king reigning in heaven, sure to return one day. And they're 40 years out and they're thinking, Jesus, where are you? Where are you, the mighty conqueror? Because things aren't going so well. There's all sorts of, as we'll see in these churches, spiritual forces, demonic forces warring against them. 
As Christianity begins to expand, the Roman government sees it as distinct from Judaism and begins to persecute it. There's all sorts of societal pressures happening. Lots is going wrong. And they might have thought, I didn't think it was going to turn out like this. When we signed up to follow the mighty conqueror Jesus, we didn't think all this was going to happen. And some, in fact, some may have been tempted to think, is this worth it? Is all lost? And so John records these words of Jesus to these seven churches and then the entire book of Revelation as if to say, hang on, if you're in Christ, you're victorious. If you're in Christ, you're a conqueror. If you're in Christ, you will, in the end, you win. Hold on, don't capitulate, don't succumb to the world. And he writes these words to encourage them. Each of the seven churches receive, and again, there's a basic outline in these, they receive a strength and a weakness and then a solution, and then at the end, a wonderful promise. It says, each church says this, to all who are victorious, and then they get this wonderful promise that's continued to spur them forward, to spur them on. So these churches are real churches. John records the words of Jesus, but they're also representative churches. Each one is very different. We will see that as we go through them, and as you see each one, you'll begin to identify with them, and and we'll be able to see ourselves. See yourself in each one of the seven of these churches. Today we come to the mother church of them. We come to Ephesus, and if you know the story of Acts 19, 40 years earlier, Paul on his third missionary journey shows up in the city of Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel. People are following him. He was in the synagogue at first. He gets kicked out of there. He moves to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and there for over two years, he's training and teaching the gospel, and the gospel rings out from Ephesus. This is uh, western Turkey, and it says, in fact, the whole province of Asia Minor heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's during this time we see all of these seven churches get started. And so it makes sense that as Jesus writes, says words to churches, he starts with the mother church, the church there in Ephesus. And he's going to say to this church, you've got some wonderful strengths. He looks in on this church and says, here's two strengths you have. And we'll look at those in a moment. And then he also looks in and he says to this church in Ephesus, but you're missing one thing. There's one missing ingredient in the midst of your strengths. And in fact, it's such a serious miss that the life and the health of the church, the existence of the church, is in jeopardy because of it. And so as we come to look at this first church today, here's my hope and prayer for us this morning. As we would see Jesus encourage this church. As we would just see Jesus say, here's what you're doing well. That we would learn from that, yes, certainly, but we also might receive the encouragement of Jesus to us. That's my hope and prayer, that we could celebrate places in our lives where Jesus may encourage us. And then secondly, as Jesus gives a warning, we would also be open to look at our own lives and examine and say, is this warning also for us, for me, for you. And so that's my hope and prayer this morning, that we would celebrate the strengths and we would appropriately take in the warning. And the good news is Jesus just doesn't warn and he says, here's a weakness. He gives a solution. And that solution will lead us right into this special time of taking the Lord's table together. And I'm looking forward to doing that again, just marking the Lord's presence with us. So that's where we'll lead into. So in your Bibles, hope you have them. Turn them on, open them up. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is very easy to find. It's the last book in the Bible. So get there. It's about 22 chapters. You come back to chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And as you're finding it, let me just introduce myself. I'm Jeff Bennett. 
have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor, and welcome to all of you here in Harbor Online. Wherever you are on this holiday weekend watching us, uh, welcome to you this morning. Let me just uh, read what these are the words of Jesus recorded by John the disciple to the church in Ephesus. Let me just read them, follow along in your Bibles. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and you have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So you saw in there two strengths. So first we'll cover those. Then we see one weakness, and it really comes in two different parts, and then we'll use the second part of that weakness just to move us into the communion time that God just won't, Jesus just won't leave us with pointing out our weaknesses. He'll give us a way to return and find his grace and mercy, and that's where we'll end. So look down there to verse 2. You'll see the first strength. Let me just read a couple of the words you see there. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. Then down to verse 3. He says, you've persevered, you've endured hardship, you've not grown weary. This church is persevering. They are working hard. They are diligent in the midst of opposition. Here's how I summarized it. First strength of this church is steadfast labor. Steadfast labor. This church was hardworking. They were earnest, industrious, unrelenting. There was a church full of volunteers. If someone needed to serve, they were ready to go. Right? If someone needed to volunteer to help out, they were there. This church had a strong work ethic. I often talk to some of you who are employers or who are supervisors, or sometimes you'll email me and you'll say, hey, Jeff, we've got an opening, we've got this position, do you know of anyone? Or sometimes I just have that conversation generally. Here's my general sense of what all employers are, are looking for, all supervisors are looking for, people that will actually work. Right? That may seem strange. But in today's economy, some of you who are in that position, that's who you're looking for, right? Just people who would be hard workers. And if we were alive in the time of the Church of Ephesus and you were looking to hire, you'd say, hey, can I go to this church and do a job fair? These guys seem great. I'd like to hire them, right? They're hardworking. They're, they're diligent. They're persevering. Even when it gets tough, they're there. I think this is a wonderful reflection of what Jesus Christ does in people's lives. We see that Christ is worthy, and so it works out in our lives. We say we want to work hard, work hard generally, work hard for Christ. This is not a lazy or an apathetic church. They're invested. They are diligent in what they are doing and what they are doing for Christ. I like this church for that. I like that. I also like Harbor for that. I see us being like this church. Thank you for so many of you who serve so diligently. You, you may not know this if you're around Harbor, but sometimes when I'm here on Saturday morning, there's a cleaning team every Saturday morning, a different team, I think on a four-week rotation, our whole building is cleaned by volunteers every week. 
The lawn is cut, the snow is moved, the building is maintained, all by volunteers. The tech guys in the back, the whole army of them, all of that done by volunteers. Our deacons who receive our Christmas Eve offering and care for the needs of our church so wonderfully, all done behind the scenes. And I could go on and on. Thank you, Harbor. I, I see this church and I see us in them. Diligent, steadfast labor for Christ. It's a good strength and I praise God that we have it here at our church. But yet their labor, again, they were working hard. There's no doubt that we see that in the passage here. But their labor was specific to something. They were working hard generally, but this church was also working hard in one specific area, one specific challenge. Look down to the second half of verse 2. What, what does it say? It says, some have claimed to be apostles, but are not. And so what was happening there in the first century is that there were traveling missionaries, uh, like Paul. He went around and traveled and preached the gospel, and people believed and followed Jesus. But there was also others claiming to be apostles, but they were not. That's what Jesus says. And in fact, here's what he says. These traveling apostles showed up in the town of Ephesus teaching wrong things, and this church in Ephesus was testing them. You see that word there. They tested them. Hey, what are you actually teaching? And they determined, as Jesus said, they were teaching false things. These are Jesus' words, not mine. So the false apostles show up, they get tested, the church declares them false. In fact, Jesus has very strong words for them. He, it's, it's actually the, what he praises them for, you cannot tolerate wicked people. Again, Jesus is using for pretty strong words here, isn't he? He's saying those who are coming and teaching false doctrine, they are wicked, and what is the church then commended for? We often don't think of a church being commended for this, but, but it is the case of this church. They were intolerant. They were intolerant. Now, they were intolerant of false doctrine. That's what they were laboring so hard towards. So, steadfast labor and intolerance of false doctrine. If you look down to verse 6, it wasn't just a theological issue. If you look down to verse 6, Jesus commends them again. He says, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And then these are strong words from Jesus too. He says, I also hate their practices. So this church was, all, was identifying there was theological things that were wrong, but then they were also looking down and seeing that there were practices that were wrong. And this church hated those practices. And Jesus says, I agree with you. I hate those things as well. Now, in future weeks, all the churches to some degree are dealing with these same cultural challenges. So I won't go into the specifics today. That will be for future weeks. But today, let's just mark that this church had no theological compromise. They were intolerant of false doctrine. There was no, and then, not just theologically, there was no moral compromise. There was no ethical compromise. They hated what was morally bad. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. And this was not just a one-time struggle they faced. It said, you have not grown weary. There was hardship. It, it implies that this is, that the, the growing weary would be, you have not become spiritually exhausted from this ongoing trial. This was not a temporary crisis that came and passed. This was an ongoing severe test, and this church just had to keep being steadfast and laboring and holding on and saying, we will not tolerate false doctrine or false practice. That's this church in Ephesus. Do you get a picture of it? I think many of you now are looking in on this church and you're appreciating them. 
You're like, I'm appreciating what this church is about. You're understanding. You're identifying what they are going through, and you're seeing that, and you're saying, yeah, I like this church. I see what they are about. It's interesting that as Jesus is trying to help these churches all be conquerors, all be victorious, he is saying that truth really matters. What you believe and what you believe to be true is of utmost importance. So maybe for some of you here today or watching online, you're not a Christian. You would say, I'm just trying to figure this out. I'm trying to check this out. I'm trying to understand this. What Jesus' words remind us all today and remind you in that category who are still on your way discovering, figuring out, seeking out Christ is that truth really matters. Your search for Christ is a, ultimately a search for truth. Sometimes like to live in a day and age where we say, well, you believe one thing and I believe one thing and we all believe different things. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there is right and wrong and we need to determine what the truth is. And so if you're a seeker today, I would just challenge you, get into the word of God. Read it for yourself. See the words of Jesus. He declares himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How we determine, you remember those two categories, courageous or cowards, uh, overcomers or succumbers, really depends on on how we respond to the truth of who Jesus says he is and what he did and where salvation comes from. But let me just pause again. That's sort of the challenge, but let's just step back again. And here's where I just want to spend a little bit of time. Just think about this for a moment. Jesus looks at this church and he says, well done, well done. He commends them. He says, good job. He pats them on the back. He gives them a shot in the arm, whatever other English phrase we have. Right? He says, you're doing good. He's doing good. That, that's, in fact, if you look at the, uh, the space here, really three verses, two, three, and six are all about praise. Nine words in verse four, which is the weakness. Considerably, if you're measuring it out, much more praise here than there is Rebuke, and I'm not in any way trying to diminish the rebuke which we will come to in a moment, but let's not get there too quickly. Just for a moment, think. Jesus commends this church. He says, you're doing well. You're doing well. So let me ask this question as we just try to apply this. If Jesus was here today and he was to look at your life, where might he just say, you're doing well? Where might he just look in and say, good job? He just paused and say, in that area, let me just give you a pat on the back. Let me just commend you. Let me encourage you. Now, I sort of pictured as I did this, some of you would be arguing with me in your head over this. Here's maybe what some of you are arguing with me right now. But Jeff, you don't know this other area of my life. Sure, maybe this area, but I got this other area, and it's a, you don't even know, we don't want to talk about it, right? And you're doing that, right? You're not taking the compliment because you're saying, well, I'm not perfect. Again, let me just, if you're thinking that, let me just for a moment look at this church. This church has got a glaring weakness. We're going to come to it. In fact, it's so bad, Jesus says you may not continue to exist as a church unless you fix it. He's saying that clearly. But he still is able to see their strengths. He see there's able, he's still able to see and commend them for their strengths. So again, not, not where we're weak, not where you're weak, not where you're not perfect, but where you're strong. Where might Jesus today commend you? Now, here's the second thing you might say if you're arguing with me. 
you might say, yeah, but I could be doing better in that area. I, I, I could do better. Yeah, maybe it's good, but there's more, and I, I didn't do this, and I could do that. And here's what I want to say to you today, if, if that's your argument. Could you just let Jesus encourage you this morning? Why are you arguing with Jesus? Right, could you just take the encouragement? Right? Sometimes we always think it's never enough. We always have to do more. We always have to be striving and working, and Jesus doesn't say any of that to this church. He doesn't say, hey, you're working hard, but you could work harder. He doesn't say you're holding to truth, but you could hold more. He just says you're doing good. Just you're doing good. And this really matters. This really matters. Because in some areas, what Jesus is saying to this church is, you are obedient to me. You're following me. And it really matters because we have to be able to believe that in some areas, we have to be able to know and believe that in some areas of our lives, we can be obedient to Christ, that he's pleased with our efforts, that he appreciates them, because if we can't get any areas in our lives, then why even bother obeying? If we never can obey anything, if we're never going to get there, then why would we even try? I so appreciate our preschool ministry. You know, it's growing. And so I take a trip back there a couple times a week to see our staff and try to get to know the kids and learn their names. And some of you are back there volunteering. And sometimes I go back there and it's snack time. And that's wonderful, right? They're all sitting around the table, right? All so quiet, all ready to go. And I come in and they wave and say hello and I'm trying to learn their names. It's wonderful. It's a great little moment. Sometimes I go back there and they're moving, you know, onto an activity. And I tell you, those teachers got those kids all lined up and everything. It's great. I'm like, wow, how do they get them all in a straight line? It's great. Now, then sometimes I go back there and it's playtime. And let me tell you, I didn't know we had so many toys back there, right? But those toys are everywhere, as you would imagine, parents. And let me tell you, the kids are having a ball, right? They're playing everything, and it seems like all simultaneously, all at the same time, there's books and cars and kitchens and everything happening. There's one little boy, I say to him, oh, I say, you're playing with cars. And he says, no, I'm playing with cars and trucks. And then he always corrects me, so I always try to be so specific. Oh, you're playing with the kitchen. He's like, no, I'm playing restaurant. And I'm like, I just can't win with this guy. Everything I say, he's like, no, you've got it wrong. I'm like, I'm trying, buddy, okay, just help me out. So just imagine, right, you, you just get the scene. Parents, you know this at your house, right? It's like you didn't know you had so much, you can't even see the floor. Just imagine the preschool teacher. She stands up there in just a normal voice, and she says, okay, kids, it's time to clean up now. And just imagine, I don't think this has ever happened, but just imagine, even when the teacher said that, suddenly all the kids just stood up. And with smiles on their faces, helping one another, they just began to clean up. Right? They began to put the blocks onto the shelf. They began to get the books and put them, you know, in the little library section there. They began to get the kitchen or the restaurant, whatever it was on that day, you know, all cleaned up and put back together. And they worked together and they cooperated and they helped and... It was cheerful and it was good and they worked diligently and then they came and they all just sat at the table there ready for snack time. Now, if they all did that and the teacher didn't faint after that moment, here's what the teacher would not say. She would not say, now class, look over here on the bookshelf. See those books? They're not in alphabetical order. We could do better next time <laughs> if the kids knew what the alphabet was, right? But, you know, we could do better. We could get those. And she doesn't look over here and say, you know, you see those blocks, right? You, you mixed up the red and the blue blocks. We need to keep the blocks separate, color coordinated. You know, and you think of all the things the teacher would never say. Here's what the teacher's going to say. She's going to look out on that preschool class, and she knows it's not perfect. But here's what she's going to say. That was good. Good job. 
well done. And she's going to say it over and over again because she wants to encourage the class. And again, look what Jesus is doing to these churches. Three verses. And he's just saying to them, well done. You're doing good. And we argue back, right? Well, Jesus, it's not perfect. He knows. Here's a theological phrase. I'll develop this uh, maybe in another series. It's not perfectly good, but it's truly good. It's not perfectly good, we know that, but it's sincerely good. And Jesus would say to these churches and to us today, just rest in that. Just rest in that. You're doing well. I know. I commend you. So some of you today are faithfully serving the Lord. You have. This last month, this last year, you're in the best place ever as far as it comes to serve the Lord. You're doing well. You're being obedient. Just let Jesus say today to you, well done. Good job. Just receive it. Some of you have held on to truth. It hasn't been easy. It's been difficult. It's been challenging. Last month, last year, last decade. But you've held on to truth. You've been intolerant of false doctrine, just like this church was. And just allow Jesus to say to you, well done. Good job. You've done well. Others of you, let me go into some other areas, sometimes that we even feel more guilty about. Some of you are sharing Jesus. You're doing evangelism. You're trying to reach out to your neighbors, your colleagues, your, your friends, your family, and you know it's not going perfectly and you don't always get it right and sometimes you're a little bit shy, but just let Jesus say to you today, you're doing well in that area. You're doing well. You're doing well. Good job. Some of you, when it comes to giving, are just incredibly generous. You tithe, you give, there's a need, you meet it. Just let Jesus say to you, well done. This is often the ones we beat ourselves up for when it comes to Bible reading and prayer. Right? Couldn't we always pray more? Yes, and if God would call you to pray more, please pray more. But yet for some of you, your Bible reading and your prayer discipline is good. It's good. Yes, it's not perfect, I know that. But it's truly good, it's sincerely good. Just let Jesus say to you today, well done, well done. That's what Jesus is doing. Actually, five of the seven churches, this is not an outlier. Jesus looks at five of the seven churches and he picks out things that they're doing well and he commends them and praises them and encourages them. If you probably heard this passage taught or you know where we're going, oftentimes this church is just known for its weakness and I'm not in any way diminishing this weakness. We're coming to it. But yet sometimes it forgets that this church really had strength. Five of the seven have great strengths and we just forget the idea that Jesus just spends time praising and encouraging. I know what some of you might be thinking now. Jeff, don't tell people this, especially about the giving. You're going to demotivate people, right? People are going to get demotivated. And again, here, here can be this. We, we have a great, great propensity to uh, deceive ourselves, right? So you, you know this morning, you, someone could leave maybe thinking, you know, that an area that really is a weakness is a strength, and I've just sort of let you off the hook in that regard. And that could be the case. But I think there's a much greater danger. Just think of that preschool class. If those teachers never praised them for the great job they did, for their diligent, cheerful work, it wasn't perfect, their diligent, perfect work, if they never hear that, they never feel they've done a good job, if they never feel like they could satisfy their teachers, you know what that class is going to do? They're going to give up. They're going to say, why would we ever bother if we never can get it right? And I think the greater danger is at times we just never hear from Christ. Well done. You've done well. And that, that in itself just encourages us and helps us keep going. 
So that's the general overview. The first strength of the church that Jesus commends them for. More specifics in later weeks. But today, just receive that, even as Jesus wanted this church to receive that. Now, that's the strength, two of them. Now, look down to verse 4. Only nine words. There's a weakness. Five of the seven churches get weaknesses. So if you're doing the math on that, two churches of the seven only have strengths, no weaknesses, and two of the churches that we'll look at have weaknesses but no strengths. But Ephesus has some of both. And it starts this way, and this is three times you'll see this of the seven churches. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. Here's the charge. Here's the rebuke. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You've forsaken the love you had at first. So they have a lack of love. They lost their first love. They used to have a love, but now they've moved away from it. They've forsaken it. What is missing? What has this church forsaken? The supreme Christian value of love. Now you might say, okay, what, what, what is this? Is this love for God or is this love for others? And again, you can read different commentaries on this. Some emphasize love for others. Some emphasize love for God. I think it's both together. Right? If we lose our love for God, we just naturally lose our love for people. And so let me just first talk about the love that would go out, the horizontal love for each other and for others. And then we'll, as we pivot to communion, talk about our love for God. It seems like this church, this church loved truth more than they loved God and more than they loved each other. You can sort of see how this would happen. This church has had a long, ongoing struggle against false teachers and heretical teaching. You see, this has been ongoing, potentially year after year. And you can see how that struggle, that, that issue, those things could engender in them hard feelings and harsh attitudes. Can't you see how that might play itself out? You know, we, we can see that today, right? As, as you might be battling for a truth. And remember, the truths here that this church was battling for were exactly right. Jesus calls the other things, the other teachers, false and wicked. So they were right. But you see how sometimes we can get in our hearts, right, that I'm right and you're wrong, and therefore I don't like you. I despise you, and I'm just going to make my point. I'm just going to declare my truth. I'm going to put you down, and I really don't care how you feel because I'm right and you're wrong. And yes, you may be, but yet there is no love, and that's what Jesus is highlighting with this church. They had lost their love for those they had lost their love for others. Not that hard. You want to go on Facebook or social media, you can find lots of examples of these things. So how might this play out? How might this play out at Harbor? Well, at Harbor, you know, and you saw it announced this morning, we have this three-step process, welcome, connect, belong. And in each of those times, we want to clearly, as a church, communicate what the Bible teaches what this church is trying to do, church in Ephesus, is trying to stand on clear teaching and clear doctrine. We as a church are trying to do that as well. If you want to volunteer, if you want to become a member, we just want to be up front. Here's the standard. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what we're basing, right? Here's how, where we stand on all of these issues. That's really important to us. And we don't only do it generally, but every ministry area in their own way sort of lives this out. We want to be attentive and teach biblical doctrine well. But as we establish that, as we keep working on that, as we keep declaring that, that really matters to us, 
But as we keep doing all of those things, on the truth side, here's what it frees us up to do. It frees us up to love. It frees us up to love. We want to keep working on the truth side, certainly. But also, I want to be able to say with all of that said, whoever would walk in our door, we want to love people. We want to embrace people. We want to walk with every single person. And let me remind you of our lives. Again, maybe you've been a follower a little bit longer in Christ, but look back to your first year as, as a Christian. Or look back to the moment you trusted in Christ. You may say, in that moment in my life, you know, I was proud. My life was a mess. It was broken. I was hurting. I was lonely. I was lost. I was angry. No, I, I was All sorts of things. You can fill in the words that might describe you in those moments. And here's what you're so thankful for. As you think back to that moment, you're so thankful. And you've got a name of a couple of people that came along and loved you. Right? And, and just said, yeah, I see. I see, what you, I see where you're at, but I'm just going to love you and keep walking you towards the truth of Jesus Christ. That meant the world to you. And here's what's happening. It's not like that just happens and then we're done with that season. We all would say, no matter where we are in the journey, we still need people like that who see our brokenness and our hurt and our pain and where we're not like Jesus and don't condemn us with truth, but yet walk along and love us along the journey. We all need that no matter where we are in the journey and this passage reminds us of this so deeply matters in the church that we would come alongside each other walk with each other find hope and healing and help for one another paul says in first corinthians no matter if you don't do it with love it's nothing it doesn't matter love is indispensable in the church some of you know Brian Che, our church multiplier. And uh, Russell was here last Sunday and gave a little conclusion about how some of the things we're doing at Harbor, God is just, uh, they're ringing out across Ontario, was I think the words he used. And Byron's really the one that leads that charge. He works for our denomination, but then also as a missionary here with us, and he's the one who's leading and helping those things spread throughout Ontario. But before Byron was in this role with our fellowship, uh, he worked on campus ministry, worked with mostly Asian students, international Canadian students, and really had seven, six, seven campuses, staff on each campus, did big retreats, big conference. He was a very good leader, and he saw God do a lot of work through him in many campus ministries around the GTA. And I was getting to know Byron. At one point, I sat down with him. You know, I sort of think leadership, strategic vision. And so I was like, Byron, just tell me how you did all that. Like, how did all that happen? Right? How did you, you know, what was the vision, the leadership structure and development, and how did that play itself out? And then Byron looked at me, and here's what he said. I said, Byron, just tell me the strategy. What did you do? He said, you know, Jeff, here's what we did. We ate a lot of meals together. We ate a lot of meals together. I was like, okay, yeah, thanks. I know that. All right, but tell me the strategy, right? Tell me what you did, like leadership development, talk about vision statements and all those things. And he said, Jeff, let me just say it again. Let me say it again. We just spent a lot of money on food. That was the strategy. That's what we did. And I asked him a third time, and he said the same thing. And I sort of thought, okay, I'm not going to get another answer. And it wasn't that strategy didn't exist and vision didn't exist, and they, they were developing leaders wonderfully well. But I think what Byron said, which was so wise, is we built the ministry on love. We built it just on hospitality. And that is what made a difference in so many people's lives. Hosea Butterfield has written a book. It's on my summer reading list, but here's the title. This is why I want to read it. The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Saying if you want to share Jesus, 
The gospel comes with what? A house key. And then I love the phrase, radically ordinary hospitality. She's saying the same thing, right? How might we convey the message of Christ through hospitality, through practical acts of love? Some of you know that our last month as a family has been rather full, some real highs and also some real lows, and we sort of continue on in that for the next couple of weeks. Um, But during this last month, some here at Harbor, and I don't want to use this word in the wrong sense, have done some little things for us, some small things. But yet, and again, the reason I use that word is because I don't want you to think they were overwhelmingly things, but they were just little small things. But let me say this, they made the world a difference to us. Just made the world a difference. Because when life just seems overwhelmingly full and someone comes along and does something which in their minds may seem little or small, it just made the burden less. Just filled our souls and we are so grateful for that. So it's been a wonderful reminder for me of just the power of what Jesus is talking about here of being a loving church. So let's, let's pause here. Let's pause. You love this church for their strengths, don't you? Just love them. They're working hard. They're, they're holding on to truth. But you see what they lost? In the midst of that, they lost their love for others. They lost their love for those who were lost. Maybe they lost their love for each other. And so we just pause and we just say, God, what's the state of my heart? What's the state of my love for other people? In the midst of battles for truth and holding on, what's my love for other people? If I was summarizing this church, I'd say it this way. They had hard work without the heart work. Hard work without the heart work, and what is Jesus saying to them? Hard work with heart work. And so, what do we do? If we might look at our own lives and say, maybe our love for others has diminished, what do we do? Verse 5 gives us the solution. Jesus doesn't just leave us with the rebuke, with the weakness. He says, here's how you come back. Let me read verse 5 for you. Look for the three action words. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus just simply gives three things there. But let me just sort of speak generally what Jesus is saying here, right? He is saying that you can have a church that is committed to truth and be loving at the same time. These two are not mutually exclusive. And sometimes today we can think, and wrongly, this gets wrongly communicated, that if a church is about the truth, that it will not be a loving church. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying, you're lacking in love, but you can build it up. And sometimes, wrongly, we think today that if you want to be a loving church, you have to just diminish the truth. Oh, don't talk about truth. Jesus is not saying that at all. He's reminding us that these two grow naturally together, and they complement each other. This is what he said in John 1.14. Jesus himself, he came full of grace and truth. When Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus 40 years earlier, he said, speak the truth in love. They go together, they complement, they build on each other, these things together. So what's the solution? Three things as we prepare for communion. But we've talked about our love for others. But ultimately, here's the question, forsaken the first love would probably refer as well to their love for God. How's your love for God today? That's what Jesus is talking to this church about. You've forsaken the love you had for him at first. And what's the first thing he asks us to do? To consider, you see that in verse 5, to remember, to go back. And it's like he's saying to this church, 
this church in Ephesus, here's what he's saying to them. You don't love me like you once did. You don't love me like you once did. And so in some ways, as we prepare for communion, Jesus says to us, consider how far you have fallen. Might you just reflect back sort of where you are and where you've been? Reflect back over your past history. And might there be a spot in your life where you might say, Jesus, today I don't love you like I once did. I don't love you like I once did. You might even think of it specifically. Jesus, I used to just worship you from a whole heart and now I just don't worship you in the same way. I just don't love you the same. God, I used to give. I used to be so generous. Lord, I didn't care. I just was generous. But now I just don't love you. I just don't give in the same way. Jesus, I used to pray. I just love to pray and call on your name. But now I just don't. The Bible, I was so hungry for it, Lord. But now I just don't have that same hunger anymore. I used to share Jesus with anyone. I didn't care what anyone thought of me. But now, Jesus, I've pulled back. I don't love you the same way I used to. I don't disciple people the same way. I don't serve the same way I used to. Again, for some of you this morning, and this is entirely possible, you may just have heard that list and you may honestly say this, I'm in the best place I've ever been in spiritually. And if you're there, just hear Jesus come, uh, praise you, encouragement to you, well done, well done. But for others, you may want to say, is there an area, is there a place where just honestly, I don't love you, Lord, like I once did. So we just pause and remember that. And the other thing we remember when it comes to communion, because Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, is we remember his crucified body, symbolized by the bread, and his spilled blood, symbolized by the juice. And so even as we see our own sin and our own lack of love for him, we remember that he died on the cross for us. It should have been us on that cross. But he took our place. He took our punishment. And so we're remembering maybe where we have fallen, but in the midst of that, we're remembering what Christ has done for us. So that's what Jesus says first to this church. Remember, consider how far you've fallen. But then he says this, step number two. It's just one word. Maybe you're in that spot. You're feeling the conviction of God. What do we do? Here's what we do. Repent. One word. That's it. Jesus says, turn around. Just go the other way. Just say, Jesus, I humble myself and I don't love you like I used to, but I ask for your forgiveness. I confess my sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive all of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and I just turn to you now. I just turn back to you. That's what Jesus is asking. That's the great grace that this table provides. We can just come to Christ. We can humble ourselves and repent, and he welcomes us to come. The third thing is do. Then go and change your actions. Go, because of what Christ has done on the cross, go and live differently. It's not first remember, see how you've fallen, now go straighten your life out, and then come and repent. You know, it's not, it's the other way. It's first, remember that you've sinned, come and humble yourself, and come to Christ, and receive his grace and forgiveness that we could never earn, and now based on that, then just go and do and live differently. You see the great grace of God. So what Paul writes when he tells us before we partake of this, he says this in 1 Corinthians 11, that we ought to examine ourselves. To see before we eat the bread and drink the cup, we should examine ourselves. So here's our examination question. We'll just spend about a minute doing this. Where might, your love, where might you not love God like you used to? The prayer might be this, Lord, I don't love you like I once did. Would you examine yourself? 
And if God would bring conviction there, would you simply just confess that sin? Would you simply confess and humble yourself and repent and turn back to Christ and so you can be prepared to take these elements and celebrate his forgiveness of you? So let's spend about a moment. Let's bow our heads, some music will play, and let's reflect and prepare ourselves, examine ourselves to partake. so Jesus we come we're considering our lives we're remembering Lord and some of us have identified areas where we don't love you like we used to and Lord we're just coming humbly we're saying we're repenting we're confessing our sin before you and God thank you Lord that in those moments we receive your grace and your mercy and you restore us and so we say thank you to you Lord for your grace amen amen in a moment, I'll invite you to come. For those sitting in the front, please come first. Come to the open table in front of you. There's a piece of bread and some grape juice. Grab that. Uh, return to your seats and then hold them in your